Rewind. Your Week in Review is sponsored by the Wisconsin Realtors Association. Bringing Wisconsin communities to life with great homes, businesses, and neighborhoods. The Wisconsin Realtors Association, the voice of real estate. This program is brought to you from Wisconsin Eyes Margaret Farrow Studio. This week on Rewind, your week in review. Now that voters have narrowed the field in the state Supreme Court race, both parties are gearing up for a contentious and expensive April election. We have you covered on the key takeaways and how Republicans are working to unite their base. Plus, there was exceedingly high voter turnout on Tuesday. What that means about elections going forward. And a judge blocks an effort to remove two GOP-authored ballot referendums. All this and more on Rewind, your week in review for February 24th. Hi, I'm Emily Fannin. And I'm J.R. Ross. Well, let's break down some of the big headlines of the election on Tuesday. First, we're going to start with the state Supreme Court race. And, of course, we had uh, now narrowed the field down to two candidates, uh, the liberal candidate, Janet Protosiewicz, and conservative former Supreme Court Justice Dan Kelly. And if you're looking at the vote totals here on your screen, you can see that Protosiewicz ended up receiving 46% of the total, which is more votes than Kelly and Duro received combined. And Protosiewicz also performed uh, just as well or better than uh, Kelly in counties that were bordering Milwaukee. Meanwhile, if you look at Kelly, he performed ahead of Duro, kind of everywhere else um, in south, but southeast Wisconsin. And he also saw some gains in rural Wisconsin as well. And, you know, what I found interesting comparing J.R. looking back to uh, the 20, 2018 uh, state Supreme Court race where Rebecca Dallet won, uh, you know, she also performed well in rural counties, so Pro Sewitz kind of had that similar mm-hmm. trend, but a lot can change come April. But, you know, I spoke to both uh, candidates, um, you know, about, you know, right after the results came in, we had a, a team at Dan Kelly's campaign, but I was, all, I was at Pro Sewitz's campaign and I asked her just about, you know, she really hammered home reproductive rights. So I talked to her, I said, you know, do you think this helped carry you across the finish line? As for Kelly, he kind of stayed on the message calling Protosewitz a grave threat to mm-hmm. the high courts. Let's just first listen from both of them post-election about this. I don't know for sure. I think there are so many issues that people care about. Certainly, I think the abortion issue had something to do with it, and we've been very clear about what my personal values are. Nonetheless, I think the utter extremism, which has been one of you know, most permeating messages clearly resounded with the voters. Every place I went when I talked to voters, they said, we don't feel like our Supreme Court is fair. We don't feel like we get a fair shake. We feel like there's a group of partisans there who make decisions and that they're not in touch with how we feel. Tonight, we join battle in the fight to preserve our constitutional form of governments against a novel and grave threat. Janet Protosiewicz's promise to set aside our law and our Constitution whenever they conflict with their personal values, cannot be allowed to stand. Never before has a judicial candidate openly campaigned on the specific intent to set herself above the law, to place her thumb on the scales of justice, to ensure the results satisfy her personal interests. So, Jair, you know, looking at this race, a lot of people had thought, you know, maybe... Dura would pull through. Mm-hmm. Um, but 
more people that I'm talking to, uh, the main reason because that is the amount of money that was spent against her in negative attack ads. Um, so now that we know these two candidates are coming up, we'll get to spending a little bit, but it kind of just once again is shows how much money can influence elections here in the battleground state. So looking at the media markets, in the Milwaukee media market, Doro had a 46,000 vote advantage over Daniel Kelly just in that 10 county area. Most of the time when I look at a Republican primary, if you do that, you're going to win. Now, it's not a pure apples apples comparison. Remember, you're four candidates in one pot. But we're basically looking at the conservative vote versus a Republican primary vote. You don't see somebody get that kind of margin in the Milwaukee media market and lose a GOP nomination or a conservative nomination unless you're getting pummeled out state. Green Bay media market, Kelly beat her two to one. He won in the Madison market, in La Crosse, Eau Claire, in Wausau. The margins were there because of the money. She had money to spend in the Milwaukee media market, a little bit in Green Bay. He had everything else, and that carried him to through the primary to face Port of Sandwich in April. And voter turnout was exceedingly high. It shattered a new record here for a primary, and there could be a lot of factors for that. Before we get to that, let's just look at the numbers right away. I mean, it was almost nearly a million people cast a ballot, more than 958,000 people. Now, this is unofficial results, too. I should just stay clear. The uh, State Elections Commission doesn't certify and get all those full numbers, but this is kind of a, approximately of what they've calculated so far. So that's about 20% of the Wisconsin voting age population. Now, this, like I said, shatters a previous record from about 16%, which participated in the 2020 state Supreme Court, which also had presidential candidates on the ballot, which is a little bit surprising because there's usually more people that are energized to vote uh, in a presidential election. So I talked to Charles Franklin, the poll director of Marquette University Law School poll, and asked him, you know, why do you think so many people were excited um, and headed to the polls this time? He talked about several factors. One thing that was unique specifically is that this is the first First time this century that we saw two liberals and two conservatives going to head to head in a competitive primary, also with the fundraising, what was at stake, mm -hmm. the issues, etc. Let's just hear a little bit from his take on that. I do think that having two candidates from each side did make a difference. Uh, this was the first time that conservatives had a real fight between two conservative candidates. So I think that may have boosted turnout on the conservative side compared to when we've only had one conservative candidate in the past. We did see money spent in the primary that went for advertising and get out the vote efforts that went beyond what we've seen in previous races. And finally, one thing we haven't mentioned is that the balance of the majority on the court is at stake in this April election. And so I think both sides are especially energized over that. The issues themselves, which include abortion and redistricting, uh, and just how you interpret the law, uh, those things also are, I think, more salient today than maybe they were 20 years ago. So while there was a lot of interest in this race. It doesn't always necessarily reflect of what we could see come April when it comes to participation numbers as well, JR. No, but there are some red flags for conservatives here. Um, we are a 50-50 state in November elections of turnout most of the time. Most of the time, you know, pretty close. In April elections, Republicans have an advantage. It's a different electorate. They have an even better advantage, a more favorable electorate in February. So the fact in the February primary that the combined liberal vote is about 54%, should be a warning sign for conservatives of the energy coming from liberals. Now, 
looking back, um, 2020, we had the April election that had a presidential primary and the Supreme Court race on it. Two million people voted in the primary or the Supreme Court race that year. In 2011, we had um, basically a de facto from an Act 10 between uh, Justice Prosser and Joanne Kloppenberg. Almost 1.5 million voted in that election. So my question is, where do we end up compared to those, right? Do we get to the 1.5? Do we get past it? Do we get to two? I had some people throw out two million people in April. I think that's a little bit high. That's like in past years of gubernatorial turnout, right? right. So that'd be a little crazy, but don't rule anything out. Mm -hmm. That said, if we go from 960,000 to 1.5 million, you're talking 540,000 more people, right? Republicans have to win that pot of new voters almost six out of every 10. That's a challenge, right, looking at what's happened. You can't say February happened this, but so therefore March, April will happen this. But you can say Republicans have a better electorate in February than they do in April. So where do you make up that vote total? That's going to be a challenge. Um, go look at places like Waukesha County. The combined conservative vote was normal, quote unquote, for Republicans. Back to where you want to be. My question is, is that because of Doro? It's a Waukesha County Circuit Court judge and the publicity that came around her because of the Waukesha Christmas Parade trial. When Kelly's by himself on that ballot in April, does he generate the same enthusiasm from those Waukesha County voters or is he more of a Tim Michaels kind of guy, right? That's the big question for him. How does he appeal to people? And oh, by the way, abortion going to be a big issue come April. Of course. Um, the going argument was that Dora was a better spokesperson for conservatives about abortion than Kelly. Not quite sure why sometimes because she's anti-abortion. She's endorsed by anti-abortion groups. Maybe it's because she's a woman that was like was more of a gentle tone. Yes. Mm -hmm. That's what I'm hearing. Kelly has spent the last four or five weeks saying, I'm the most conservative person in this race. I'm the farthest right you can get for a Supreme Court candidate in this primary. How do you go from that to being a good spokesperson on abortion to those same suburban female professional voters Republicans have lost the last few years? That's going to be a big challenge for him going forward. And that's what we also saw during the midterms with Tim Michaels. Mm -hmm. I mean, he was kind of flip-floppy on the abortion issue. First, he was totally against it, totally against adding exceptions. Then he vowed to sign a bill that would have exceptions if it reached his desk. And we often heard from a lot of people that we talked to and our sources that they, they think that really hurt him. Mm -hmm. Of course, there was other factors as well. But that is the big question. Do we see Dan Kelly start talking about this issue? Maybe it's going to be difficult for him. I mean, we already know from polling about two-thirds of Wisconsinites support adding exceptions. And we saw from the midterms, you know, across the United States, abortion was a huge motivating factor for uh, voters and, and getting excited uh, about the election. So, of course, we know we have this 1849 uh, criminal abortion ban on the ballot, essentially, because of control of the court is up for grabs. Um, now, I kind of just want to talk uh, about how the state party chairs are reacting, because always after the field narrows, the parties become much more involved. Their mm -hmm. resources are kind of unleashed to help their uh, designated candidate. And, you know, historically what has been a challenge uh, for Republicans is uniting the party. And particularly what I'm talking about is kind of the party infighting we saw leading up to the August primary last year when people were upset about uh, no endorsement option at the state party. There were some people upset with Assembly Speaker Voss trying to, you know, the Toss Voss movement. There was a lot of...
different feelings, I should say, and a lot of passion from Republicans. And their goal was to, like, after the primary, let's all come together. So now we're going to try and see that again. So I talked to Brian Schimming, uh, the state party chair of the Republican Party here in Wisconsin, about, you know, how are you going to do that? Um, how are you going to unite people who were backing Duro uh, and are not really excited about Kelly? And he, of course, you know, remained confident that we can do it. We've done it in the past. But that is... I think, going to be a challenge moving forward. Meanwhile, I talked to Ben Wickler, the Democratic chair of the state party, and he really says he feels comfortable uh, about this election. He's a little concerned about the money. I know Dan Kelly's campaign has vowed to, I think they said around $20 million they want to put in this race. Uh, But Ben Wickler said he believes this is going to be the central defining issue in this race, and they're feeling pretty good about it. So let's just hear from both party chairs about this issue. Everybody in events, folks who are watching us right now know 10, 15, 20, 30 people who are like them, who vote like them, who live like them, but don't vote in off-year elections a lot. We get those people out. Dan Kelly's going to win. He is going to win. When people understand the differences between the candidates, I think he wins the election. The fact is everyone knows that this election is essentially a referendum on whether abortion should be safe and legal or whether it should be criminally banned in the state of Wisconsin. If you think this is something that, that comes down to the, the freedom that individuals need to have, people need to vote for Janet Protasiewicz. Jair, there was also a little bit of bitterness with conservatives, too. I mean, some grassroots members and other Republicans were telling me that they were upset before Tuesday that Kelly was not going to promise to endorse Duro if she made it through. Now, of course... That doesn't matter anymore. But Duro did pledge to make that. And right after, the day after election, her campaign sent out a statement saying, I'm going to follow through on this. I'm going to endorse Kelly. Please let's get behind him and do everything we can to get him elected in April. So that's kind of also another, you know, contentious Mm -hmm. primary that we've seen. So that is really something I'm going to be watching for of talking to grassroots members and just other people, Republicans, if if they can do it and how they're feeling heading into April. So speaking of the parties, uh, the Democratic Party of Wisconsin transferred 2.5 million to Janet Prose, which the day after the primary. She then laid down a more than $2 million buy through April 4th. Uh, a Better Wisconsin t- uh, Together Political Action Fund, which spent $2.2 million targeting Doro during the primary, laid down $500,000 in the first four or five days, five days, post-primary. The first ads we're seeing are abortion. And then you have a Better Wisconsin Together hitting Kelly about past comments on Social Security and Medicare. Uh, up in the Green Bay. The message in the Milwaukee ad is all about abortion. Prasewicz has two ads calling Kelly an extremist, including hitting him on abortion. Now, conservatives are going to say the media is too focused on abortion. We want to talk about other things. We want to talk about no jail Janet. We want to talk about how uh, she's given light sentences to people who have been before her in court for various offenses. Mm -hmm. Uh, The challenge, though, is for us in the media is the ads are going to talk about abortion over and over and over again. It's going to be, a, you can't ignore that. What I'm getting from conservatives and others is the best chance they have to beat Portisiewicz is to try to disqualify her. Uh, that she's got her thumb on the scale of justice, pushing it toward a certain way. Um, she is soft on crime. The challenge with that is that attack worked on Mandela Barnes in the U.S. Senate race last fall, partly because Barnes is on air saying, or in the camera saying the phrase defund the police holding T-shirts saying abolish ICE. They attacked Tony Evers on crime. It didn't break through as much because you didn't have Evers saying the same kinds of things on camera. Portisiewicz, the former prosecutor, judge, already doing ads while she's a no-nonsense, you know, common-sense judge. Might be harder to stick that complaint. 
And the other thing about like a judge being biased, conservatives are screaming foul already about like her comments. She's already saying how she's going to rule in cases. I talked to you a couple of sources a week. I said, look, voters post Dobbs overturning the Roe v. Wade decision. They want to know what they're going to get. So the part, the point was, liberal voters want an outcome that they voted for, right? They want to know the person voting is going to vote to overturn that abortion ban. And Protestant is sending that message that she is the one. Now she says, I can't tell you how I'm going to rule, but she talks about her values, right? They know what they're going to get, and they're going to be motivated for that. So it's something to watch in this race. And that's the exact same thing that I'm hearing too from conservatives: is we want to hear how Dan Kelly feels about this abortion issue. Of course, he's not going to be the one that would be adding exceptions for rape or incest. That's the state legislature. But that is something that we have seen in the past election, too, of wanting to hear candidates talk about this issue. We saw a lot of Republican candidates dodge, dodge, dodge the questions about it, and maybe it was too late. Um, so uh, let's also, you talked about fundraising, too. I mean, there's going to be a lot more money <laughs> <laughs> coming through. But I first want to highlight your tally that you calculated as of Tuesday. Mm -hmm. So there was more than 9.2 million uh, combined between all of the candidates that was spending so far. And a majority of that was 8.4 million that was spent on TV, radio, and independent uh, expenditures. Also, we've mentioned this before too, the anti-Duro and anti-Protosawitz. I mean, the anti-Duro was way more than the anti-Protosawitz ads that some people may have seen. Um, there was $2.6 2 spent on Duro and roughly about 750000 uh, spent against Protosawitz. Now, looking ahead, JR, we've already heard from commitments from pro-choice and anti-abortion groups that they are ready to open their checkbooks and invest in this. No surprise, right? Um, because of how uh, important this issue of abortion is to both candidates and just to voters as well. So we heard from state and national Planned Parenthood groups saying they expect to spend about seven figures uh, to support Protosawitz. Meanwhile, Susan B. Anthony, a pro-life America group, said it has committed to about six figures to helping elect Kelly in the uh, that was spent during the primary and they anticipate more money to be pouring in. So just keep uh, getting ready to see how much uh, this can really break. So remember, the most expensive state Supreme Court race in Wisconsin history is $9.8 million in 2020. We are already pushing $12 million, just those first two media buys post-primary from Port of Saywich and Better Wisconsin together. Kelly is saying, or was saying to people, the conservative community, legal community, is prepared to spend $20 million bucks on my behalf. Um, he got a donation from a guy who's a conservative actor out in D.C. who has connections to those kind of groups, the Federal Society. Liberals say, okay, they spend $20, we will do 35 Now, this, these numbers are almost obscene. This is like a gubernatorial-type election. I don't know you're going to see that much spending. What I do get the impression of is if conservatives do spend 20, liberals are prepared to top it. Now, if they only do 10, they're not going to do 35 just for the heck of it. They'll spend something less. But liberals are more energized, they say, about this race. Conservatives acknowledge that they have a harder time getting the national donor network to get like focused in on what's happening here. Whereas with, uh, with the liberal side, they've already got the national interest focused. I mean, you look through the state parties' uh, donation list. A lot of outside, money from outside Wisconsin. Proto which a lot of the late contributions came from out of state. Now, looking at her fundraising overall, she had detailed about $2.2 million in donations to the state by the, low after the prim, or by the primary. Of that, about nine hundred grand came from out of state, which is a lot for a Supreme Court candidate. She still raised $1.2 million from in-state donors, which is 3.5 times more than Kelly's raised. 
from in-state donors. So yeah, there's out-of-state money coming in, but also in-state money jazz up about this race. There is a financial advantage right now for liberals in the Supreme Court race. And the national record in a state Supreme Court race was set by Illinois in 2004 at 15 million. Yep. I think we're going to beat that, JR. <laughs> yeah. I think you yeah. did say a few weeks ago, I think uh, you said it right here, uh, yes. that that is likely going to happen. All right, let's move on from the state Supreme Court race and talk about the 8th Senate District race. Um, Representative Dan Knodel no- uh, uh, made it through. Uh, and we have the vote totals right here on the screen. JR, I guess, um, you know, there was this big inkling whether Janelle Branchin was going to make it through. She got the Trump endorsement just days before the election. But you, like you mentioned, I mean, she wasn't able to put that in mailers. She wasn't able to, uh, you know, really show that message unless she was door knocking. I did talk to her. She said she's doing quite a bit of door knocking. Um, but Canoldo came out on top. Uh, there's about $250,000 plus spent by Republican groups, either pro Canoldo or anti Branchin. He basically doubled her up in the primary. It is a sigh of relief for um, Republicans because they worried that Branch had put that seat more in play. Now, Jody Habish-Sinikin has been a great recruit for Democrats, both sides tell me, raising money, good connections, great story. The challenge is with Canodal not Branch, and is it enough, a, a good enough environment to win that seat? It's a 55% Republican seat. It's not a swing seat. Another challenge is the Supreme Court race will probably overshadow everything else. So how do you break through in that environment, in that race? It'll be interesting to watch to see if um, she can do that. Also, don't forget, Canodal, while he's, he's the moderate alternative branch, and he's no moderate. He's a very conservative guy, and I'm not saying that in a bad way, but just his record is definitely not a squishy middle type guy. It'll be interesting to watch how he messages abortion, right, in this district, which is a suburban Milwaukee seat. Does he perform like Ron Johnson, who got around 55%, or like Tim Michaels, who got about 515 If he's more Michaelish. In this environment, with this kind of money, it could be an opportunity for Dems to pick off a seat they shouldn't normally have. And speaking of the April election, what will be on the ballot and remain on the ballot is two GOP referendums that address bail reform and uh, a question from Republicans about qualifying for assistance for welfare. Um, a Dane County judge, why I'm bringing this up is because they, uh, Dane County judge blocked an effort to remove uh, those referendums from the ballot. They basically said that lawmakers complied with the deadline, so voters will eventually see those two things. Uh, now let's... Uh, before um, we get to stock picks, just, uh, or excuse me, let's get to stock picks. Um, rising this week is voter turnout. Now, I know we just talked about those numbers, JR, but specifically we want to talk about Dane County because holy moly, once yeah. again, a lot of people voted. So Dane County is 10% of the voting age population. That's how we, we measure turnout in Wisconsin because of senior registration. It accounted for 14% of the vote on Tuesday without really an effort to turn out the Madison campus. So you can see that Madison, Daniel is a powerhouse once again. Now, Democrats need it to be a powerhouse because Milwaukee continues to lag. There were 7,000 more votes cast in Dane County than Milwaukee County on Tuesday. Um, I've heard from black leaders who are not happy about Everett Mitchell, the way they think he was treated during the primary. I don't know there'd be much excitement in the black community in Milwaukee to turn out in April for Port of Sewage. There usually is not a high turnout uh, in north side of Milwaukee in April elections. But Democrats also did well, well, liberals, in lots of places. I think they won combined vote around 28 counties. Evers won like 10 fewer, something like that. And even like places like northern Wisconsin, the four counties across the top of the state, legacy Democratic areas, been trending away from them because of the Trump era. Um, Evers hit like the mid-50s in Ashland, Bayfield, Douglas. Didn't win iron. 
um, the combined liberal vote was even higher in all, all three of those counties that Evers won, and they topped Iron County. Granted, Iron County had like less than 1,000 people vote in the primary on Tuesday, but still, you know, it shows you that there's some enthusiasm out there on the liberal side. Uh, that's a warning sign for conservatives. Also, don't forget, like talking about Waukesha County, how is it going to perform? Can it be a powerhouse for conservatives like it used to be, or are we going back to the uh, Tim Michaels numbers, which would be a bad thing for them? All right, and mixed this week is the mayor of Green Bay, Eric uh, Genrick. Genrick, so, excuse yeah, me. We can't say X happened in February, so Y happens in uh, April, but if you are the incumbent mayor in a four-way primary and you get 46% to play second, that's not a great place to be. It doesn't really portray strength coming out of your primary. Now, you know, you can say, I'm not going to spend money in the primary. I'm, I'm, I know I'm going to get through. I'll focus on the April election. That could help. Um, we'll see what kind of outside help comes in. With Green Bay, keep in mind that this is a key city for 2024. Who the mayor is has a bit of sway about things like, oh, you know, the clerk, what kind of hours they have for early voting, um, how many early voting sites they have around the city. Uh, Genrick is going to face a former Republican lawmaker, uh, Weininger, um, Interesting to watch how resources come in there. Oh, by the way, Gendrick has been a target of conservatives about the 2020 election. There's also now a lawsuit that's been filed by Senate, uh, Senate Republicans, essentially, because there are surveillance cameras that were put up in the city hall that had microphones, captured conversations. That could be a legal mess for him. Um, compare where Gendrick is to, like, Tom Nelson. Ran for U.S. Senate last year, county executive. Three-way primary, got 50.2%. Next uh, guy down is 28. So that's a much stronger place to be perception-wise if you're an incumbent. This is something to watch. A couple of local races of, of note on the April ballot for us. And following this week is Janelle Branchin because her future is uncertain. What she's going to do next? So look, she is no longer a chair in the Assembly. She's no longer allowed in closed caucus in the Assembly. She placed distant second in a primary for the State Senate. What's her platform going to be going for? How does she get attention? Now, some people have to go, well, maybe she's going to be the Trump co-chair of his campaign in Wisconsin uh, next year. Maybe. Um, but what's her platform? What's her future? I mean, does she just collect a paycheck going forward, go to committee hearings and, like, speak up when she can, be on the floor? But she does not have that platform she had before to raise her pet issues. And there's less attention being paid to her because she's becoming more and more, less and less relevant in the assembly uh, with the position that she's in. And JR, before we end the show, we just want to make an honorable mention uh, of the unfortunate passing of a former governor, and I'm talking about Democratic former governor Tony Earle, who served as the state's 41st governor from 1983 to 1987. Uh, he passed away on Thursday. He was 86 years old. He was a one-term governor, but he was known by many of his friends, family, and colleagues as a, as a staunch environmentalist. He was one that really uh, fought for gay rights. He had one of the first cabinet uh, with some openly gay individuals and part of it. So I uh, just wanted to mention that before uh, we end today. Uh, the thing that came through in my conversation this week was just a decent human being. Mm -hmm. uh, that may not be, sound like much in this world of politics, but just that is a very com a good compliment for people on both sides saying just a decent human being focused on what he thought was right, not what he thought was good for him politically. And it was back during an era where he was able to reach across the aisle mm -hmm. despite uh, disagreements um, to work with Republicans as well, even as a Democratic governor. All right, that will do it for this week. Thanks so much for joining us. I'm Emily Fannin. And I'm J.R. Ross. We'll see you next week. This program was brought to you from Wisconsin Eyes Margaret Farrow Studio. Rewind. Your Week in Review is sponsored by the Wisconsin Realtors Association, bringing Wisconsin communities to life with great homes, businesses, and neighborhoods.
the Wisconsin Realtors Association, the voice of real estate.